send that honorary doctorate to 13248 Roscoe Boulevard. So whoever's in charge of those here, I receive it. Thank you. Thank you. I've, I've worked really hard for this moment, and I wish my wife was here to share in this, this high honor. But you don't give a lot of honorary doctorates out, but when you do, you give them to me. And for that, I'm grateful. Hey, guys, it's really, really good to see you and be with you. It's been a few months since I've been here uh, to Master's College Chapel, and I knew what I wanted to talk to you about since last year. And so I invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. This passage I've been teaching through the book of Hebrews in our college ministry. Some of you have been the victims of that. But last fall, we were in this section, and it's a passage that had a, had a big impact on my own heart. And it's one that's haunted me, honestly, provoked me, one I can't get out of my head. So I want to share it with you today. And I hope that the Spirit of God would use his word as he promises, but he would accomplish here this morning uh, something unique, something particularly Christ-honoring. The title of this message is The Danger of Drifting, and it is the topic of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Read along with me. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed According to his will. Let me pray and ask for God's help. Father, once more we ask that you would speak to us through your word. That your spirit would teach us. That we would be humble before it. That we would be soft in our hearts, moldable, teachable, responsive. Sovereign Lord, use your word to convict your people, to draw and convert lost souls, to wake us up from spiritual lethargy, and to draw our attention onto Christ, the matchless one. We ask this in his name. Amen. It's a provocative little passage, isn't it? All you Bible majors know this is the first warning passage in the book of Hebrews. 
the book of Hebrews is, is marked by these passages. It's, it's built around five different sections that talk about the need for us to listen, the need for our caution, the need for our care, for our, us to be aware of, of some kind of danger. Uh, they're just what they sound like. They're warning passages. Warnings can be white noise to us. There are warnings all over our society on the clothes that you're wearing and on the items that you touch today. And some of them are, are goofy. Uh, the chainsaw in my garage. Just drop that. I have a chainsaw. What a man. It has a label on the side of it that says, do not hold blade end. Who, who would do that? I opened a package of toothbrushes for my children and it said, do not chew. Do not chew? Someone finally noticed that these are strange warnings and they wrote a book about it, trying to profit off of our folly. Dorigo Jones, the book is called Remove Child Before Folding. The, the subtitle is the, ten, the 101 Stupidest, Silliest, and Wackiest Warning Labels Ever. It, it shows you that on Nitol sleeping pills, the warning is may cause drowsiness. You think? Here's, here's a warning label. It says, do not use while sleeping. And that was for a hair dryer. <laughs> when the iPod shuffle came out, the website said among, you know, how much memory it had on it and how little instructions, one of the, one of the things in the list was do not eat. <laughs> do not eat? Are you telling me not to eat ever or not to eat this item? <laughs> because the warning to not eat ever makes more sense to me than the chance of me actually consuming the iPod shuffle. <laughs> In my car, I have a, a Jabra drive and talk. It's a Bluetooth thing. Like, you know, if you have kind of an older car, your car doesn't do that for you. That's me. And so I, I put it on the thing due to just a small infraction of the law that I experienced one time. Kind of hang it up there, you know. Kind of clunky, but it's on there. And the instructions in it say, comes with this thing, which its purpose is to use your cell phone in your car so you don't get a ticket again. And it says, never operate this speakerphone while driving. Why are you telling me this? That's for the reason I bought it for. <laughs> One of the ones in the book is a small tractor made by a company called New Holland. And the label says, really, really simply, avoid death. <laughs> That's just a helpful warning, I think, for all of us. Avoid death. We're all aware of warnings and I think they become just noise to us. Just noise. 
especially in an overly litigious society, they're, they're seen as stupid and silly and wacky warning labels. Uh, but I would hope that you would see a contrast between the countless warnings that you hear from day to day, some of which are trivial, some of which are more important, and a warning like this one, a warning that should cause you to shudder at its seriousness, a warning that comes in the context of a letter written to Hebrew Christians, probably meeting in Rome, according to the last chapter of this letter, a small group, most likely assembled in a house that was experiencing an increasing level of persecution. Their goods were being confiscated. They had already been cast out of the synagogues and were no longer involved in the institutional Judaism that they grew up in, and they'd been made somewhat social outcasts. Christianity would become an decreasingly a popular option, it was never in vogue at this time, but it would become a dangerous thing to be a Christian. And so a lot of these readers, the recipients of the epistle to the Hebrews, were considering a return to Judaism. Either go back to Judaism and get rid of most of the problems they were having as a result of their association with Christ, or maybe syncretize the two minimize Christ, maximize Moses, angels, things that were okay with their friends and relatives in Judaism. Many of these men and women were on the brink of recapitulation. They were considering turning back, and it wasn't just to Judaism, it was to whatever their former manner of life was. And I think that's where the transcendent realities of this letter come and reside in a place like this. There are significant dangers all around us when it comes to the temptation to look back over our shoulder to where we've come from rather than pressing ahead in our pursuit of Christ. There's a significant danger to be allured by the world, by the flesh, by the devil, and to reconsider your commitment to Christ. The longer you walk with the Lord, the more you know this is true. I, like many of you, was raised in a Christian church, went to church every Sunday, and made a confession of Christ at an early age. And most of my friends growing up were church friends. I went to public school, and I had friends there and was involved there, but my life at church was more important to me. Kids I knew in Sunday school class became my dearest and closest companions in life. We grew up together. We went to camps, did student ministry stuff. We went on mission trips. We were in the same small groups. I knew a, a group of people uh, my same age that we were friends in the context of our church for all of our lives together. And at about the time of life that you are at, those college years, 18, 19, 20, 36. I began to see more and more of them less. Maybe they went off to school and I heard that they were no longer going to church or 
they got a job and it pulled them in a different way, or they fell in love with a girl who wasn't interested in Christianity. And usually not suddenly, but slowly and imperceptibly even, so many of those friends that I had growing up, church-going friends who used to sing worship songs in the youth group and attend church and participate in acts of Christian service were no longer following Christ. The longer you are a Christian, the longer you walk with the Lord, this will also be your experience. You will come to not only have a theological understanding of the issue of apostasy, of abandoning the faith, it will become your very painful experience as those who you knew and loved and were close to you and who you had all confidence that they understood the gospel and that they loved the Lord Jesus Christ slowly step away from him. And the burden of my heart this morning is to give you a warning from Hebrews 2, 1 through 4 to each one of us because none of you are immune to it. The warnings in the Bible are not some kind of uh, false threat of an overly permissive parent who continually tells his kids, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. The warnings in the Bible are given to you from God and they have teeth. They're with all genuineness. When God threatens you with something, when Jesus threatens you with something, he means it and you would do well to take it seriously. And so I want to look at this little passage of scripture briefly this morning. And alongside of you, the author included himself in the warning two times. I want to put myself under this warning. I want to put all of you under this warning and tell you about the danger of drifting. Because it's a real threat to your soul. He begins with the word therefore. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. You see, the warnings in Scripture are never just mere emotional manipulation. It's not some kind of soft music to make you feel sad about those people who used to be Christians but aren't anymore, about uh, the danger of abandoning your confession in some kind of emotionally manipulative way. Uh, the directives and warnings of Scripture are always rooted in theological and doctrinal truth. This word, therefore, links this passage to everything that's been taught so far in the book of Hebrews. And the message from chapter 1 up to this point has been very clear. The message is this, God has spoken. And he has spoken throughout the ages through the prophets. He has revealed himself, and that in and of itself is an act of mercy. That God has spoken, shown himself to mankind, is proof that God cares about us. But something has taken place. In the coming of Jesus Christ, there has been a superior revelation. God has spoken in former days through the prophets, but in these days, he has spoken to us by way of his son. Hebrews 1, verse 1. This is the son through whom God's revelation has come. This is the son through whom God has spoken. He is shown in Hebrews chapter 1 to be a superior revelation, the heir of all things, the radiance of God's glory, the sustainer of this world, the redeemer, the sovereign, the supreme one. His unequaled greatness is on display and will be on display for the entirety of this letter as this author tries to argue with these believers who are 
tormented by doubt, considering returning to their former manner of life and show them that nothing compares with the greatness of Jesus. Nothing is worth turning your back on him. Nothing exceeds him. Nothing is greater than him. Nothing will satisfy your soul like Jesus will because he is great and he is glorious. And so he tries to show them the folly of going back to the former way of life and that the blessings found in Christ will be discovered nowhere else. And that longing to go back is a serious sign and symptom of something he'll call drifting. And he wants you to fight lukewarmness and run from apostasy. So let's look at this passage. The first section, we could just call it the danger they faced in verse 1. The danger they faced. The therefore is rooted in all that went before. God has revealed himself by his son. Through seven scriptural references, he quotes the Old Testament, showing that this is the message of the Old Testament, Christ's superiority, both to angels, and then eventually the argument will turn towards Moses, towards Joshua, Christ's superiority to all of the Old Covenant. The shadow's been replaced by the substance, but they face a significant danger. Verse 1, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. This signal revelation in Jesus Christ, Hebrews 1.1, is the message of the gospel. It's the message of the, the life, the works, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. And it's the message that, that came from Christ's mouth and through Christ's life and was given to them by apostolic witnesses. These people as next generation followers of those eyewitnesses, those who heard the apostles, who saw Jesus them, him, themselves and then transmuted this message to them. They are hearing this final definitive message and the author of Hebrews wants them to see that they must pay much closer attention to what they have heard. It's a reminder that we need to be reminded. The songwriter says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And as love for Christ around us dissipate, and as confessing believers drift away, as this was happening in this little church, it's happening today in churches. This final supreme unequal greatness, this revelation is being abandoned. And there's a great danger here. He gives them this warning for their edification. He's not trying to point them towards destruction. He's trying to point them towards Christ. Bill Jones describes it this way, they are neither heartless threats nor self-fulfilling prophecies. They are an exhortation which is truly evangelical in spirit and content. Why is God threatening them? Why is he putting this before us even today? It's because he needs you to hear that this is an evangelical threat. This is a threat that is intended to point you towards the glorious good news of the gospel in Christ, to remind you of those basic truths that you once held so dear that have become less important to you. You see, when you first heard the message of the gospel, it was captivating. 
when you first heard that speech about Christ, as you first experienced what it was to have a new heart, to experience an otherworldly affection so that your love for your flesh and for sin and for self had been overcome by a greater affection and love for Christ and his matchless glory and beauty. You, at one point, if you became a Christian, longed for Jesus and loved Jesus. It was your heartfelt desire to evangelize others and tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. It was your desire to be with God's people, and it would raise your heart to heights of joy to sing songs about Christ and to hear the word of Christ preached. Sermons were food for your soul. Christian fellowship was essential for your survival. But I wonder if some of you, like them, have begun to go to those spiritual pleasures. Where this threat comes from God's heart to your life right now at the Master's College and what he threatened to mean. And he wants them to see the danger that they face, the danger of drifting. Verse 2, he says, the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. This is a a reference to the former message, the one spoken by the prophets, the Old Testament as we call it in verse 1. You see, the, the coming of Christ, the revelation of Christ doesn't diminish or demean the Old Testament. The Old Testament was reliable. It is reliable. It's true. It's an issue of better and best. It's an issue of two eras. It's an issue of shadow and substance. And what he's saying is an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's saying if the first revelation that God gave to man was mediated by angels, a reference to how the word of God came to man according to Acts chapter 7 and uh, Galatians chapter 3, the Old Testament message was mediated by angels. If you want to know what that means, you've got to ask Dr. Chow. I have no idea what that means. But in some way, the angels were the attendants of God's message, and that message was authenticated. It was proved to be reliable, declared by angels, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. You see, God's revelation is always true. It's always from him. It's always attended by angelic hosts. It's always reliable. And if you reject it, there will be consequences, always. That was the case for the people of Israel. That's the case for the people of God. That's the argument that he's making. Do you understand it in verse 2? It was declared by angels. It was proved to be reliable. And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Those who violated God's warnings about life, those who refused to listen to his words about how to live in a way that would honor him, received a just punishment. Verse 3, he says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? You can't. You can't. So that's where this passage is going. That's the the force and the shape of this argument. But look back at verse 1. Therefore, since Christ is the full and final revelation from God, since God has spoken fully and finally through his own son, not prophet-wise, but son-wise, we must pay much closer attention. The inference is, is that some have stopped paying attention. It's our tendency, isn't it? 
our attention is not easy to maintain. We can receive diagnosis for our inability to pay attention. But I do think it is part of human nature. I mean, it is so easy to look behind the person that's talking to you. What's that over there? Is that a shape? That's a wall over there. We are so easily and readily distracted. The busyness of our lives, the uh, perpetual reminders and dings from our phone, uh, the people who are trying to pull on you, uh, the responsibilities you have in school. There's a lot on your mind and it's easy to be drawn away and to be distracted. And this exhortation understands that. It's vivid, it's personal, it's illustrated. It's not an eloquent manipulation of emotions. It's grounded in exegetical and doctrinal truth. He's threatening you. You need to pay attention to this. You need to heed this. You need to pay closer attention to that which you've already heard. You've already learned it. The exhortation's basis is based on the greatness of Christ. It's rational, it's logical, it's coherent. And the nature of it is that you must pay closer attention. Don't let the gospel, don't let the person and work of Jesus Christ, don't let the good news of salvation become white noise to your ear, become a useless warning label that you dealt with a long time ago. Don't move on to something much, much more interesting than Jesus. second part, the danger they face is clear, but the warning he gave I think is even clearer. Verses two through four, the warning he gave is a warning about drifting away. Lest we drift away. It's a word with nautical connotations. That word drifting, it's often used of an anchor slipping off the floor of the sea as a shell for a lower part, unaware of the, the captain's intentions. He, he doesn't know what's happening down there, but they're no longer in the same spot anymore. Or it could also be used of a boat that was tied up and that had become unmoored from the dock and had slowly drifted out to sea. This word speaks of a kind of inattention, a kind of slow, slight, gradual moving away from the first commitment and the first thing. This nautical word pictures a boat that's just out 
wandering about, an anchor that slipped from the bottom. In ancient literature, this same word is used of a ring slipping off of a finger. I do a lot of weddings because of the people group I minister to. I'm like a wedding. And I've seen many times rings slip and fall off of fingers. Because when you get married, you're skinny. My ring's not going anywhere. Like I'd take it off as a visual aid, but it would be humiliating how hard I would have to grunt to get this baby off of it. I mean, it, I'm committed to my wife. <laughs> and to pie. <laughs> but when I do a wedding, I've seen the ring slip right off. And I've heard even more often when this lovely young skinny couple comes back from Hawaii and has a sad story to tell because they went to Cuba and when they got out of looking at fish and coral reefs, the ring was gone. They didn't feel it happen. They didn't see it happen. They just noticed it. Drifting. That's what drifting is like. This exhortation is a, a real one, an anchor broken loose from the ocean floor, a, a, a ring that simply slips off of a finger, a mooring that slips a ship from drifting from the dock and the harbor out into the open sea in attention and carelessness. It's not so much the well-reasoned argument of an atheist. C.S. Lewis said that. C.S. Lewis said, if you examined, he said, I wonder if you examined 100 Christians who had left their confession of Christ, how many of them were reasoned out by a, by a strong argument, reasoned out of Christianity? He speculated that it was very, very few. I agree. Instead, and I think the warning in this passage reminds us that that drift that slow movement away from Christ, movement away from the means of grace, movements away from the church, movements away from the centrality and significance of the transformation that God has wrought in your life through his son, movements away from the, the warm-hearted affection that you had for Jesus, movements away from the passion that you had for Christ and for his church happen rather casually, even accidentally through inattention and carelessness. R. Kent Hughes says it this way. That church's experience 2,000 years ago intersects our lives in this way. Drifting is the besetting sin of our day. Do you agree with that? Drifting is the besetting sin of our day. He goes on. As the metaphor suggests, it is not so much intentional as from unconcern. Christians neglect their anchor, Christ, and begin to quietly drift away. 
There is no friction, no dramatic sense of departure. But when the winds of trouble come, the things of Christ are left far behind, even out of sight. The writer of Revelation uses different language but refers to the same thing when he quotes Jesus as saying to the ostensibly healthy Ephesian church, I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So whether it was the cost of following Jesus for these Hebrew Christians, whether it was the societal pressures, whether it was the the friendships that they had lost as a result of their allegiance to Jesus, whether it was the pull of the flesh, whether it was a longing for their former manner of life, whether it was just to get the government and the Jewish leaders off of their backs, whatever it was, they had slowly drifted away from that first love, that commitment that they have to Christ, and that slow drift happened then, and it happens now. And I think that there's a variety of reasons for it. I don't think there's one reason, but I know that it happens, and I want you to take a moment and think about your own location in your life spiritually, where you are in your walk with God, and consider the things that could make this drift happen to you. Take this warning seriously. Because the process of drifting away from the gospel is at first imperceptible. But it's real. Growing up, ain't nobody was a Calvinist. Ain't nobody. Grammar. They were strange creatures. I thought they were French kind of Huguenot people from a different time and my town, I think there was one church with four people that were reformed people, and they had bad attitudes. But today, everybody's a Calvinist. Everybody's a Calvinist. They, they believe in the sovereignty of God, and I, and I love that. I'm a, I'm a five-point, five-point Calvinist. That extra half point's just an oomph. So... think it comes with an inherent danger on this topic and it's not just reform people that fall into this but there's a mantra that we say once saved always saved and that is not an adequate explanation of the perseverance that God grants to his people I believe that God will sustain every true believer Those he elects, he justifies. Those he justifies, he will finally glorify. But I think there are many, and the warnings of the Bible are in concert with this, there are many who believe that they have been justified, who believe that they are being sanctified, but will experience this imperceptible but real drifting away from the gospel, drifting away from holiness, drifting away from sanctification. No true Christian can be lost. But if the only answer that you have for apostasy is once saved, always saved, once saved, always saved, that is not the kind of perseverance we sang about in the first song today. The holy effort required in our pursuit of Christ, the constant checking of our own hearts, our commitment to him. No true authentic Christian can sin himself into eternal lostness. But no authentic Christian would ever, because we are those who continue to the end and we will be saved. 
God will keep his people, his people will persevere, but that doesn't change the necessity of perseverance. I think too many Christians approach perseverance the way they would approach floating in an inner tube. Their Christian life is just one of floating around, going with the flow. But if drifting is the besetting sin of our day, and to neglect our anchor, to forsake our first love, we need to be mindful and aware of what happens when this is taking place. I want to ask you, has your grip on Christ loosened? Is there a general neglect of spiritual things? Because sometimes our exposure to those things accomplishes instead of more closeness to Jesus, it increases because of our sin, because of our neglect, a hardness of our own heart. I mean, Master's College Chapel attendees, you know this better than anyone. How many sermons have you heard? I don't think you could count them over the years you've been at the Master's College. You've heard countless sermons, countless times. You have heard the voice of God himself through his holy, inspired, and powerful word. Does it have the same impact on you that it once did? problem isn't overexposure to scripture the problem is that imperceptible grip the hardening of our hearts the grip on our savior being slackened when you used to speak to him with such freedom and joy and prayer and now you don't talk to him at all when you used to long to make your life match the life of your savior you wanted to be like christ and now you just drift Worship used to be a delight to you, but now you mouth the words and wonder what you're going to have for lunch. No point of spiritual conversations. Possessions have become increasingly important to you, perhaps. You've just become fascinated with yourself, maybe with a relationship, with leisure taking it easy. You used to be offended when your conscience was violated. I wonder if that still happens to you. Or if that's been seared over. You never would have cheated on a test. How about now? What's your integrity like? These are all signs and symptoms of that imperceptible drift The neglecting of Christian fellowship is one that the author of Hebrews is going to put before them in chapter 10, and I think it's a very clear indicator. Duncan talking about the importance of church again. Sheesh. But, pardon me if I do for a moment. To be with God's people, to worship with God's people on the Lord's day, to sit under the preaching of the word, join your voice in praise with, with, with those who identify with Jesus, to observe the sacraments of baptism, the Lord's Supper, for, for those to be the definitive mark of your regular life in Christ is how God intended you to persevere in your faith. One of the important ways he intended for you to persevere in your closeness to Jesus is your closeness to God's people. That's why he'll say in chapter 10, do not neglect the gathering of yourselves together. The 
consequences of ignoring Christian fellowship could lead to the ignoring of the gospel, and the consequences of those are severe and sure. Look at what the verse says. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How great is the salvation? He gives three lines of evidence to close out this passage. It was declared at first by the Lord. This is salvation that was testified to its glory and greatness by Jesus' first coming himself when he announced that he came to seek and save lost sinners. This is indeed a great salvation. And it wasn't told you by some, uh, the, the line of evidence doesn't start with the person who told you the gospel. The line of evidence doesn't start that you heard about this, this Christ. The line of evidence starts with Christ himself who announced that he came to seek and save the lost declared at first by the Lord. The second line of evidence he, he tries to give to show you how great, to try to convince you and, and lure you back to warm-hearted fidelity to Jesus away from drifting is by telling you not only is this great salvation declared by Jesus himself, but it was attested to us by those who heard. That's the apostolic witness. These are the men and women who had their heads cut off, who were bur bur burned at the stake for their love for Christ, for their preaching of the gospel. The third line of witness is, is God, the Father himself, who bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. There you have both apostolic signs and miracles and wonders and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in the ordinary graces of gifts in the church. God the Father, God the Son, the apostolic witness, all testifies to one thing. Salvation is great. It's worthy of your attention, so don't slack in your attention. It's worthy of, of keeping it close to you, so don't let your drift begin by letting go of your grip on these things. Last fall, I went to Scotland for the first time. My last name is Duncan. So I guess I've been there before, but I, I don't remember. Genetically. And I toured Edinburgh. What a city. What a city. Panoramic views. A martyr's monument. A great friar's chapel just moved me to tears to see the spot where a hundred covenanters were sent to the gallows. A martyr's cross there. I'd never seen it before beautiful city, tremendous history, church history geek, it was just perfect for me. And as I looked at this spot where the covenanters were killed for their faith and their commitment to Christ, I saw the people walking on bread, sitting around it, eating ice cream. We, we wouldn't blame them, they, they, have a, they have a flask right there in front of them. Super cultural. Walking around. Walking right over it. Totally secular place now. And they've looked at this thousands of times and it was nothing to them. See, the familiarity with it has become and led to meaning that's what happens to many of us when it comes to things like the gospel and to 
acceptable drift of forgetfulness. It's all part of the danger that we face, and it's why we must heed the warning that he so clearly gives here. the transgression and disobedience and the punishment that Israel faced. Thousands were killed for defiance to Yahweh. He's reminding us that the salvation that we have heard about is the fullness of the salvation that God's accomplished. It's the greatest and therefore the judgment will also be the greatest. May that question ring in our minds. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? teenager there was this beggar woman a gypsy and this little gang of drunk guys poured liquor on her and she lay there in poverty down her throat mocking them and she pointed her finger at Robinson and said you will live to see your grandchildren thought about it more and more, he realized that if he did have a long life, he was actively wasting it. And so he and a few others one night after they had been drinking again, went to hear a famous evangelist by the name of George Whitfield. And it was under the preaching of Whitfield that Robert was soundly converted. Two years after his conversion, he wrote that famous hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, Tune My Heart to Sing Thy Praise. And that chorus about wandering, according to some stories, came true in his life. Years later, Universalists that believe that kind of everything is God and there's no exclusivity to the gospel. The story is told that, that late in his life he was riding in a carriage and a woman was humming the hymn that he wrote when he was first converted. And she saw that he was affected by it and she asked him, Sir, Madam, I'm the poor unhappy man who wrote that hymn. 
years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings I have now. I don't know what happened in his life. And I don't know what's going to happen in your life. But will these years Masters call us be marked by an increasing fidelity to Him. Friends, God has spoken. And what makes apostasy so perilous, so audacious, so shocking is the greatness and the glory of the gospel. To walk away from a mere human religion, to walk away from a philosophy, to Abandon a mere human idea is one thing, but God has spoken and he's spoken through his son and we are called to listen to this final word from God's son that's found in Jesus because none is greater. We ought not to neglect it, but we ought to pay close attention to it because if we don't, if we neglect it, we will not escape the retribution of God and his great judgment. Faith that's true will endure to the end. But you have a responsibility, friends, to stay close to Jesus, to avail yourself of all that he's given you by his grace to know him in his word and in prayer and in the church. If you do not continue, there is no hope, there is no atonement, there is no forgiveness, there is no salvation. There's no eternal life. Don't drift. But cling closely to Christ because he is the final word from God. Father, thank you for your word and for these students. I pray that you would press in all of our minds privileged we are that the superior revelation of Jesus Christ that we have been the recipients of gives us great responsibility to walk with Christ each day to follow after you to pursue obedience to love righteousness to follow after purity to seek communion with you O God persevere in this, God, as we follow and pursue you. Help us be mindful of any tendencies we have to wander, to hold us close. 